Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Numbers, the book of Numbers. I'll be covering the first four chapters, but only reading part of chapter three as we begin a new series. Mission scholar Christopher Wright has written, It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. Our Lord Jesus launched the church and gave to his disciples a commission and his Holy Spirit. But long before the incarnation, God called his people out of the house of bondage to leave slavery and to go to the land of promise and there to dwell and to testify to the power and the goodness of our great God, living amongst hostile pagan nations. This series in Numbers covers 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness as God's people left Mount Sinai and arrived at the eastern shores of the River Jordan. Tonight, we review the calling of the Levites, their priestly role, and try to glean the implications for us as, king, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for God. Please follow as I read Numbers chapter 3, beginning in verse 40. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel, from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord. Instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males according to the number of names from a month old and upward as listed were 22,273. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. And you shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is God's word. Our Father, we would ask, at the words of my mouth, 
that the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Moses met with God out in the wilderness in the form of a burning bush. Jonathan strengthened his friend David's hand in God. When David and his men were out in the Judean wilderness on the run from the madness of King Saul, the Lord Jesus went out into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. In Scripture, the wilderness is a place of trial and temptation. It's also a place to meet with God. In the earliest centuries of the church, men like Anthony, Pacomius, Simeon, and many others would make pilgrimages out into the wilderness of Egypt and the surrounding territory, sometimes to flee the persecution of the Roman Empire, and other times to flee the temptations of worldly society. Some of them formed monastic communities, established orders and rules of discipline for those who would seek God and were willing to submit to the rules of a godly community. Now, in our Reformed heritage, we frown upon monasticism and the removal away from society, as we believe we are called as a priesthood to be salt and light among, among society. And though we live in the world, many of us can testify to how blessed we are when we can get away. Perhaps on a weekend retreat or a conference to commune privately with God, to receive excellent teaching, to enjoy fellowship with other believers, to take a break away from the cares and worries of the world. In the book of Numbers, we find God's people in the wilderness. And the setting is one which, after the Lord had given the law to Moses, as recorded in Exodus and Leviticus. And this book records the trials endured, the lessons learned by an entire generation living in the harsh wilderness where they had to depend upon God for their daily bread. And as God prepared the next generation to enter into the promised land where they would live set apart, to testify to the nations God's greatness and holiness. Now, in many ways, all of Israel was called to be a royal priesthood, but it was to the Levites that God gave the priestly duty to help God's people fulfill their purpose. And in their calling, we find parallels for us today as we have been redeemed by God to serve in a broken and fallen world, even while we are waiting for its final healing and the restoration of all things. Numbers opens on the warpath as Moses and the other leaders are counting up the men 20 years of age and older to a total sum of over 600,000 600, fighting men. God sends Israel upon a bloody mission to eradicate the land of the pagans who were ripe for judgment due to their severe, egregious idolatry and immorality. 
And yet the Levites are exempted from war, for they have a holier task. They are to lead God's people in worship, to care for the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God on earth. And the tabernacle was so holy that any non-Levite who approached it was immediately put to death. In our passages, God gives instructions for how the Levites were to camp around the tabernacle and how the 12 tribes had to camp around the Levites and the tabernacle and the whole arrangement order of marching when it was time to move the tabernacle to a new location and transporting its tent and furnishings. Chapters 3 and 4 give specific duties for the Levites. And a familiar pattern found in Genesis, in which the author would introduce a key figure or a new era, is found in chapter 3, verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses. And that's the kind of language that would introduce a whole new era in the economy of God's purposes. And the introduction of the priesthood was significant for the life of Israel. Theirs was a holy calling that was not to be taken in vain. And we have a reminder and warning in verse 3 with a reference to Aaron's oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were put to death for offering up unauthorized fire before the Lord. But verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 give us the background reason of why God was calling the Levites to this task, to serve the nation as priest and the keeper of the tabernacle. The Lord says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. We recall that final and dreadful plague upon the Egyptians by which God finally delivered his people out of slavery. When the Lord struck down all the firstborn males of the Egyptians, both man and beast, it was with a mighty hand that God redeemed his people and so claimed the firstborn sons of Israel in his service. In response to this great act, Moses tells the people in Exodus 13, Therefore, I sacrifice the Lord all males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it's notable that it's not until after the tragic golden calf incident in Exodus 32 that the Levites are designated to take the place of the firstborn sons, both for their bravery and courage and for Israel's failings. Now, the tribe of Levi was made up of three clans, the descendants of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The Gershonites were responsible for maintaining and transporting the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, its covering, the screen, the entrance, 
into the tabernacle, the hangings of the courts, the screen for the door around the altar, and so forth. The Kohathites, from which Moses and Aaron came from, were responsible for the most holiest objects, the Ark of the, of the, of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, the table and the lampstand, the altars and the various vessels. And of course, the line of Aaron became the line of the high priest by which his son Eleazar would follow him and after him came Phineas. And it was their charge to keep guard over the sanctuary. And the third clan, the, the Mirrorites, carried the frames and the bars, the pillars, bases, and various accessories. And you could read all the details if that's your fascination. In chapter 4, there's lots of details about the tabernacle and uh, lots of interesting details if you're an artisan or uh, uh, work with wood or, or stone. Um, but there's lots of responsibilities laid out in these chapters. And in chapter 4, uh, we see that the Kohathites, who, from whom we get the priestly line, would enter the service of priesthood at age 30 and would continue on to age 50. And they would, of course, care for the most holy things and would set up camp on the, on the Israel's way out, taking down the screen and covering the ark, handling the bread of the presence, uh, the dishes of incense, the bowls, the flagons for the drink offerings and the showbread, and taking out all of the various utensils and vessels that were holy to the Lord in the service of the tabernacle, everything in it, the sanctuary and all of its vessels. So it's to this tribe that the Lord is giving these high and holy duties. And at the end of chapter 3, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 2, Moses counts up the Levites, the, the men that are ready and prepared for service, and they count 22,000. And the Lord then has Moses count up all the firstborn males throughout all the tribes, and the number comes out to 22,273, which scholars suggest is a small number of firstborn sons for 600,000 men total in the population, and many have suggested that only the firstborns of the, of the new generation, those who were born after the Exodus, those who actually cross into the, uh, cross over the Jordan into the land of promise and taking it by storm uh, after the prior generation died in the wilderness, as would be their punishment for their rebellious unbelief that is recorded later here in chapter 14 of Numbers. But instead of claiming the firstborn for the service of the tabernacle, the Lord takes the Levites. And in doing so, invokes the divine name in verse 41 with a command, I am the Lord. The Levites take the place of the firstborn. They serve as a substitute to offer up regular sacrifices for sin, to make the people holy and acceptable before the living God. They would provide cleansing for the tabernacle and its furnishings and enter into the most holy place only under the, by following the severe regulations of the Lord. Now when Moses compares the number of the Levites with the firstborns, he identifies a gap the Levites fall short by 273. So what will Moses do? 
Does he recruit volunteers? Does he assign another tribe in Israel? Well, no. The Lord will have no other alternative for his plan. For the Levites are mine, he says. I am the Lord. And invoking the divine name once again, the Lord would insist that Moses and Aaron follow his instructions lest they suffer his wrath. And so the Lord orders payment for the 273 firstborns above the number of the Levites. And the price is five shekels for each man given to Aaron as a redemption price and money for the tabernacle and the offerings that need to be made on behalf of the people. Now, five shekels in that day and age was equal to about a year's wages for a common herdsman. So it wasn't cheap, but also was not overly burdensome to cover the redemption needs of the firstborn. And so we might ask, is this just some obscure ancient ritual that has little significance for us today? I don't believe so. I believe in these details we find a very important message, that the cost is high, that there is a price needed for God to provide redemption for his people, to restore them into a right relationship, into fellowship with himself. We have deep estrangement with God as a sinful people. The debt that mankind has incurred incurred to God is immense. And so God throughout Scripture uses various ways to help communicate to us our spiritual poverty. After the nine plagues upon the Egyptians, the Egyptian landscape was in ruins. Pharaoh's advisors were at their wit's end trying to convince their king to let the Israelite people go. But the stubborn king had a heart of stone. He refused. And represented in doing so represents the obstinacy of mankind in unbelief. It finally required the angel of death to take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son among all the others in Egypt, both man and beast, to finally accomplish the mission to let Israel go. Now God had given fair warning to Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter 4 when he declared that Israel is my firstborn son. And if you will not let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. The cost of disobedience is high. The consequences for sin is great. And the price for redemption is far higher than any sum imaginable to men, one that would dwarf the national debt. You recall how Faithful Israelite families, in order to protect their own firstborn sons on that night of Passover, took a one-year male lamb without blemish, killed it, 
and used its blood to cover the, the doorposts and the lintel, the, the crossbeam that holds up the wall above the door. And when the angel of death saw the blood on around the door, it passed over that household and did not strike the firstborn sons with the judgment of death. God used the Passover to communicate that blood was quite necessary to protect and to redeem the sons of God's people from the penalty of sin, which is death. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God had taken animal skins to cover their nakedness. God accepted a ram as a substitute to sacrifice in the place of Abraham when he had Isaac on the altar. And now at the Passover, a lamb would be slain for the family. And soon would come the practice where Israel would sacrifice a lamb on an annual basis for the entire nation. Establishing the pattern, establishing the precedent, communicating the will of God to send forth a final lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of not just one man, not just one family, not just one nation, but the entire world. The Lord was preparing his people for a great calling, learning that the price required to redeem the firstborn was quite high, but also the price to commission his people as priests. So the importance of the firstborn and the need for blood and the price of redemption and the idea of substitution, all of these key elements are necessary to understand God's story of redemption. And what Israel understood in part, you and I have full access to from the whole counsel of God. The scriptures that reveal to us God's firstborn and only son who offered not the blood of bulls and goats but came as our high priest to offer up his own blood to protect his people from the penalty of death. Jesus Christ paid the cost by his perfect life and grisly death and bore the weight of sin, succumbed to the wrath of God to bear the, to bear the punishment that you and I deserved. When we embrace his life, death, and resurrection by faith, we receive not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the full rights as sons, heirs of the promise, beneficiaries of the privileges as well-loved children of the living God. God has rescued you and I from paganism, karma, from man-centered Religion making efforts to pay an impossible debt, the never ending task of removing our crimson stains and clearing our ledger before an infinitely holy God. The Lord does not deliver us from his holy wrath, only to send us on our merry way. Rather, he saves us into fellowship with himself. You and I are redeemed for a purpose, to enter into holy service, to live as his witnesses, to fulfill our calling as a kingdom 
of priests and a holy nation. Much like our forefathers who were delivered out of the house of bondage in Egypt, you and I are rescued from the slavery of sin. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And God sends us on a mission. And he calls you and I to trust him, to follow him as we trek through the wilderness of this fallen, broken, enemy-filled world. He invites you and I into fellowship with himself, to take refuge in him, to find cleansing and strength for the long journey. In a few minutes, we will celebrate together one of the means he has given us to commune with him, to appropriate his grace given receiving the tangible signs of his goodness and mercy and the confidence that we have peace with him through Christ. And the Lord does call us to take up arms, to engage in the battle of this world for lost souls. But like the Levites, we are not called to wage with the weaponry of this world any holy war of conquest as in the Old Testament era. We are not commissioned to exterminate enemies from the land. Rather, we put on spiritual armor, fighting the battles for the minds and hearts of lost men and women. Our aim is to expand the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ, to spread his name and his fame among the nations, to serve as intercessors, to plead with the Lord to grant faith and repentance to those who are trapped in the darkness of sin. As God's priests, may we spread the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ among those who are perishing. Then they might awaken from their deathly slumber and find life in his name. May we heed well this high and holy calling and take care to draw near to the Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and abide in the vine, to draw nourishment that we might bear fruit in a dry and barren land filled with peril. The remainder of the book of Numbers repeatedly refers to the Lord's presence and the threat of his removal due to the people's sin. Israel will struggle in the wilderness, fearing the giants in the land, grumbling at Moses, griping over food and water, longing sometimes to return to the land of Egypt to slavery, failing to trust God as their good and faithful king. The Lord will warn them, test them, but ultimately deliver his people through this 40 years of wanderings, purify them, and equip them for service in the promised land. The Psalms, like Psalm 95 I just read, exhort us to worship and to kneel before the Lord, our maker. For we are the people of his pasture. But it goes on to warn not to harden our hearts as our forefathers did, who put the Lord to the test. And consequently, they were forbidden to enter the Lord's rest. Psalm 67 draws on the upcoming blessings of number six and casts a glorious vision of the nations being made glad and finding joy in the Lord 
who desires to bless them and fulfill his promise to Father Abraham. The Apostle John, in the opening chapter of his gospel, writes that God's word tabernacled among us. God sent his only son, our high priest, full of grace and truth into the world that was made through him and yet did not know him. Even though his own people didn't receive him, all those who did receive him became the right to become children of God. The Christian life is filled with trials and pitfalls. But you and I are blessed to live on this side of the cross, to benefit from those who have gone before us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. As we begin a, a new series for the next few months, may we take heed, may we listen, may we gain instruction from those who have gone before us. May we learn what it takes to walk well in the wilderness, a wilderness filled with trial and temptation, a land filled with giants and venomous serpents, filled with enemies of the cross. As we walk through a land of thorns and thistles, of disease and hardship and disappointment and even death, May we not despise the wilderness, but hold fast to the Lord, to seek his face, to dwell in his presence, to find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us pray. A gracious God and Father, we do praise you and thank you that though you call us into the wilderness, you walk with us, you guide us, and you keep us, you protect us. And you will lead us ultimately to the promised land where we will dwell with you forever. I pray that you would give grace and strength and encouragement to your servants as we seek to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Go with us this week as we ask in his most precious name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.